1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, America on fire after another black man is dead at the hands of police. Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy and renowned social activist, joins me to discuss if the uproar this time will actually change things. Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones on America, racism, and violence. Then, Hong Kong in Beijing's crosshairs. The mainland government is asserting greater control over the island. Citizens of Hong Kong have reacted angrily So has the United States government. What happens next in this high-stakes showdown? This is a tragedy for the people of Hong Kong, the people of China, and indeed the people of the world. I'll talk to the last British governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, as well as the city's legendary campaigner for democracy, Martin Lee. Also, it's graduation season, at least on the Internet. I will give graduates my thoughts and share some of the smartest that I have seen. But first, here's my take. Like most of you, I'm still taking in the events of the last few days, the gruesome death of George Floyd, the riots in so many American cities. So I just want to make a few brief observations. Some people are asking, why is this happening now? Haven't things gotten better for African Americans? Many are titans of business, hold political office, or are leaders in their communities. So let me say the events of the past week are happening against four backdrops. The first is our criminal justice system. Things have improved along some dimensions for African Americans, but there are still pervasive inequities in this country, and most importantly, there are deep inequities in the criminal justice system. Radley Balco of The Washington Post did a good roundup. These start from something simple, like stopping a driver. In the book Suspect Citizens, the authors reviewed 20 million traffic stops. In an interview with The Post, they explained that blacks are almost twice as likely to be pulled over as whites, even though whites drive more on average. Blacks are more likely to be searched following a stop, and just by getting in a car, a black driver has about twice the odds of being pulled over and about four times the odds of being searched. According to their research, blacks are more likely to be searched even though they are less likely to have contraband. It goes all the way to the death sentence, which also seems to suffer from systematic bias. Just one example. In a North Carolina law review essay analyzing murder cases from 1980 to 2007 in that state, killing a white person made it three times more likely that someone would get the death sentence compared to killing a black person. And there are dozens of studies about various aspects of the system all pointing in the same direction. Second, this is happening against the backdrop of a police that over the last several decades has been given more and more arms and greater and greater leeway in what they can do with them. When I travel around the world, this is one of the things that stands out about America's police force. It looks like an invading army with the kind of weaponry that in most countries is wielded only by an army. Plus, you have unions, juries, and laws that make it hard to actually dismiss a police officer for misconduct, even for totally legitimate reasons. Third, let's not forget this is all happening against the backdrop of a pandemic, a lockdown, and three months in which 40 million Americans have lost their jobs, a toll rivaling the Great Depression. This creates an atmosphere of anxiety, fear, and purposelessness for three months, It should be a wake-up call to leaders everywhere that people want to and need to return to some sense of normalcy, of course, with maximum efforts to stay safe. It is also happening against a fourth backdrop, no national leadership on these issues. Americans respond to leaders when they show empathy and courage, even when the message is hard to hear. Recall Robert Kennedy's plea to the people of Indianapolis after the death of Martin Luther King not to uh, uh, embrace violence. Watch Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms talk to her city of Atlanta. But at a national level, there is just an effort to further divide, not to unify. In any event, I remain optimistic. These protests are part of the airing of problems, real problems, that many countries suppress. I have always been reminded in these moments of the closing lines of one of my favorite books by my former Ph.D. advisor, Sam Huntington. In American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony, he writes, Critics say that America is a lie because its reality falls so far short of its ideals. They're wrong. America is not a lie. It is a disappointment. But it can be a disappointment only because it is also a hope. And let's get started. A warning, you are about to see some graphic video. Mama, that's who George Floyd called for when a police officer's knee was on his neck. Floyd later died in police custody. And Floyd's killing, along with other high-profile killings of African Americans, has captured America's attention. Angry demonstrators have poured out onto city streets across the U.S. for the past five nights. Many protests have turned violent. Let me bring in Brian Stevenson, an attorney and professor at NYU Law School. He is the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. Brian, thanks for coming on. And tell me how you react to... uh, to the, to the point I was making, you know, people are asking, why is this happening? What do you think is the background that people need to understand?
2: Well, it's interesting. Next month uh, will be the 155th anniversary uh, of thousands of emancipated black people who celebrated the end of slavery. It's called Juneteenth. And they believed that this country would reckon with all of the lies and distortions created to sustain slavery. Black people were... Uh, told to be said to be uh, not fully human, not evolved, they can't do this, they can't do that. And these lies were needed to justify enslavement for two centuries. But rather than reckon with those lies, confront that history, we've done the opposite. We've actually found ways to legitimate white supremacy. The great evil of American slavery was this myth of white supremacy, and rather than protect and uh, formally enslave black people, we did the opposite. We denied them the right to vote. We had promised. We denied them the land. We allowed, uh, in this country, for decades, black people to be menaced and targeted, and lynched and victimized. And our justice system did nothing to hold people accountable. We actually perpetuated this idea that black life does not matter, black rights do not matter, and for a hundred years. Black people were denied basic equality. I was born at a time uh, when uh, black people could not vote. I I couldn't marry anybody I chose. There there were laws prohibiting that. I couldn't go to the public school. I started my education in a colored school. And in the 1950s and 60s, when uh, black people put on their Sunday best and went to places to protest Jim Crow and segregation, they would get beaten by the police literally on their knees And uh, that turned into some changes in laws, but since that time, we have not reckoned with this history. We have not acknowledged the wrongfulness of white supremacy and segregation and racism. And because of that, we now live at a time when there's still a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people. Those data you cited are a manifestation of this presumption. And until we reckon with this history, as Germany has done, as Rwanda has done, as South Africa has done, we will live in a state, we will live in a nation where black people are marginalized, menaced, excluded and threatened uh, in the ways that we've seen with these acts of police violence.
1: So help us explain, because you've been struggling with the criminal justice system for so many years, why is it that you hear people at the top you know, seemingly trying to do the right thing. President Obama, when he was president, even now there has been this judicial the prison uh, you know, system reforms in terms of senti- sentencing and things like that. But why is it not translating down to the day-to-day lives of black people when they encounter the police, the prosecutor, the jail?
2: Yeah, I don't think we've made the kind of effort that we need to make. Uh, there has been some discussion, usually in crisis, but it hasn't been followed. the kind of implementation. Five years ago, I was part of a task force with police chiefs and activists and advocates. We went around the country, we gathered testimony, we came up with 40 pages of recommendations to change a police culture. And that's what has to happen. The culture policing in this country has to change. Uh, We train police officers like we train soldiers. They're taught how to shoot and how to uh, wrestle people and control people. They're not taught how to manage conflict. And they're not taught how to de-escalate. We don't require data. We can't even tell you how often police kill folks in this country because there's no requirement for data. We haven't required uh, the legal structure to change so that people can be held accountable. So this task force in 2015 made all of these recommendations. And frankly, when the new administration came in, they threw it away. Uh, They did exactly the opposite. They didn't support implementation of this, and that's been part of the problem. The Justice Department actually retreated from lawsuits where they were holding police departments accountable because they wanted to say something else, and this is the consequence of that, and I don't want to put it all on the White House because mayors and governors and local legislators have not implemented these reforms either. We can change the culture of policing in this country. We've seen it happen before. We changed the culture around people driving while drunk. You remember there was a time when we didn't take seriously people who got in their car intoxicated even when they killed others, but Mothers Against Drunk Driving and other advocates changed the culture, and we now respond differently to that. We've changed the culture on domestic violence. It was a time when the police would never arrest men accused of abusing their spouses. But we've gotten to the point where there's now a consciousness about that, where we don't tolerate that quite in the same way. We still have a long way to go. The culture is changing around sexual harassment in the workplace, but we haven't changed the culture of policing. And until we create a nation where our police officers see themselves as guardians rather than warriors, don't view the people they police as enemy combatants as you do in a foreign conflict, we're going to see the incidents that we've seen in Minneapolis and in too many communities across this country.
1: Do you think it even goes beyond that? I wonder whether the police are being asked to handle things that are really part of a more general societal breakdown or, you know, issues where, um, I don't know, there, there should be great efforts made to help uh, kids be in school and work hard. You know, we, we, we sort of, the police becomes the solution to a whole bunch of problems that are not in their origins criminal in nature.
2: Well, I I think there's some truth to that, but the police have a role to play. Look, the identity of police officers in this country for a long time has been to enforce all the conditions that give rise to truancy, that give rise to poverty, that give rise to hopelessness. It was the police who tracked down fugitive slaves to sustain slavery. It was the police that turned their backs on white mobs when they were lynching black people. It was the police that went to the Evan Pennis Bridge and brutalized and bloodied uh, nonviolent protesters. And so that identity cannot be ignored. Uh, We are going to have to change the culture of policing. You're right that there are broader issues that also have to be addressed. In 2001, the Bureau of Justice projected that one in three Black male babies born in this country was expected to go to jail or prison. And that's not just about criminality. That's the way we traffic and the way we enforce and the way we menace, the way we prosecute. And no one said anything. Nobody did, no one saw that as the crisis uh, that it is. And so there is outside of police.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. Um, I gotta break in at this moment, uh, thanking you for those eloquent words. We're breaking in from our normal GPS to take you to an amazing event going on 250 miles up in space. The SpaceX Crew Dragon is just moments away from docking with the International Space Station. This after yesterday's historic launch from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It was the first time since 2011 when the space shuttle program ended. That accrued mission was launched from American soil. Now, let's watch and listen as the two astronauts, Doug Hurley and Bob Banken, get ready to unite with their international colleagues.
3: You can see much more clearly there the hinge mechanism for the nose cone. Those four uh, black circles are the four bulkhead Dracos, not to be used at this time. And then, of course, the, the pedals of the soft capture system. Wow.
4: Dragon on the big loop, we're inside 10 meters. We cannot make out the darkest docking target, but we do see the outline.
5: We copy and concur 10 meters.
4: Right, we're less than 10 meters away. Again, we're closing at that rate of less than a tenth of a meter per second. We should be just about one minute, 45 seconds away from docking.
3: There is a, uh, a center line camera right in that middle so that you can see where the Ford hatch is. Uh, and right in the middle of that, there's a window and there's a center line camera that is aligned with the center of the vehicle and the center of the docking mechanism. So that is, is what the autonomous docking system is using to line up with uh, sort of a cross crosshatch, um, cross-target on the, the docking port. Again, the forward docking port um, on PMA2, or the pressurized mating adapter.
4: And we are just five meters away. Again, we're racing that sunset. This dragon continues to close, four meters to go.
3: Those shadows of the of the space station on the vehicle. Yeah, you can actually see the uh, centerline camera pretty clearly there, um, sort of with the contrast of the, the sun right now. Three meters to go.
4: Two meters. We are inside the hands-off point, the CHOP, the crew hands-off point, one meter to go. Soft capture complete.
2: Dragon in. (laughs) Soft capture confirmed, standby for retraction and docking.
4: And we just heard it. Soft capture. We have docking that coming at 716 a.m. Pacific time with the station and Dragon flying 262 statute miles right over the border between northern China and Mongolia. You
3: saw a little bit of motion there uh, of Dragon. That was that relative motion that the soft capture system is damping out Once that motion is is clear, then uh, the soft capture system will be retracted and uh, Dragon will go for hard capture.
4: Again, if just now tuning in, that soft capture, that docking coming, 7.16 a.m. Pacific, 10.16 a.m. over on the East Coast. Dragon and the International Space Station were flying 262 statute miles right over the border between northern China and Mongolia. So that soft capture ring now going to retract. It's one more step on the way to docking complete. Yeah, and so the
3: the next step here is once, once the soft capture ring is retracted, there are uh, 12 latches that we refer to as hard capture latches; um, those are what will really create that pressure-tight seal between the Dragon spacecraft and the International Space Station. So once soft capture is complete, and uh, I believe we'll get that call from from our core here, Anna, then uh, we'll get we'll get confirmation of hard capture, and uh, the crew, of, of course, aboard have have this information on their displays. So they'll also see indication of hard capture complete. And uh, once those two steps are done, then that's, that's docking complete.
4: That's right. and we're, we're expecting to hear some words from everybody. A pretty monumental moment. I mean, for Doug Hurley, he's returning to where he last docked uh, almost nine years ago on the very last space shuttle mission. Uh, now commanding the very first commercial spacecraft to deliver astronauts to the International Space Station. That's, that's gotta be cool for them. Uh, they've, they've mentioned quite
3: a few times that they're best friends, uh, are our favorite dads in space, as we've been calling them. Uh, this, is, this has gotta be really cool for them. It's gotta be really cool for their families too, watching this.
4: It looks like we have another quick handover. We'll get that video back shortly. We're about 75% complete already with that retraction. Once that retraction is completed, we'll keep an eye out for the 12 ready-to-hook indicators. Once those are ready, those 12 hooks will begin to engage, and that'll securely attach Dragon to the International Space Station.
3: Yeah, so right now, the vehicle confirming that the uh, soft-capture system has is deployed correctly and is fully retracted. And then uh, once the soft-capture system is fully retracted, that'll set up the vehicle to, to put in the hard-capture uh, pins. There's 12 of those around the docking ring, and that's what creates that uh, airtight seal uh, between the Dragon spacecraft and the International Space Station. Uh, The the volume between, which we refer to as the vestibule, is currently not pressurized. Um, Of course, it was just exposed to the vacuum of space until uh, literally minutes ago, about four minutes ago. So um, just waiting for the vehicle to get that.
2: Dragon SpaceX, ring retraction complete. Docking sequence is holding for MCS reconfiguration.
4: All right, so we we see those ready-to-hook indicators are lighting up green. So we should be just about to step into uh, those 12 hooks, beginning to engage uh, to get that secure mate between Dragon and the International Docking Adapter on the space station.
3: Wow, right now those two vehicles are flying
4: together. They are attached to each other. It's... It's been just under 19 hours since we lifted off. We're actually at about 18 hours, 58 minutes, and 42 seconds. So we promised about a 19-hour ride up to station, and we made it just a few minutes before that. Uh, They were able to dock a few minutes ahead of schedule. We were tracking them to still take about another 10 minutes, uh, but able to step through all of their burns about 16 minutes ahead of schedule and get us to where we are now. If you missed it just a few moments ago that initial docking coming at 716 a.m. Pacific 1016 a.m. over on the east coast of the United States and they were 262 statute miles flying together over the uh, northern border of China and Mongolia. So really yeah. exciting we're just waiting for this docking complete to be confirmed. We'll Expecting to hear some words, obviously, from the crew on board and all the excited teams down here who are just waiting for this moment. And then it's time to start getting Dragon integrated into the station. There will be an umbilical that will get mated, and that will allow Dragon to flow data and power into the station systems. And then it will be over to
2: the crew. Endeavour on station at Houston on the Big Loop. MCS is configured. We're proceeding with hook driving.
4: All right, and they did a quick. Uh, so the the motion control system onboard station now back under those control moment gyros. So handed over from the Russian thrusters, and Dragon now given the go to drive those hooks. We have to do that changeover of attitude.
1: And that is history being made. Now there might seem a contrast between what is going on in space and what is going on in America, but let me remind you that America was convulsing in unrest when the original moon landings happened in 1969. So maybe the lesson is that we can be divided on Earth, but we are united in space as human beings. Anyway, next on GPS, we will go back to our main story, and I will talk to the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones about the history of violence and racism in America.
2: I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard.
1: That was, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. from a speech called The Other America, delivered at Stanford University. The words were spoken in 1967, but they do still ring true today. Joining me now is Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a reporter for The New York Times and the creator of the paper's 1619 project. Um, Nicole, I want to ask you about those words of Martin Luther King but juxtaposed against the words of uh, the mayor of Atlanta who said, stop rioting, stop burning uh, businesses. Fifty percent of the businesses in downtown Atlanta are minority-owned Um How should we think about this tension of people, you know, of the riots and and violence being used in what is clearly a just cause?
6: Well, I think what we're seeing is the manifestation of a network of inequalities that black Americans face and have always faced. Uh, When we're framing these conversations, it's important to understand that uh, we are talking about the descendants of people who were enslaved in this country for 250 years, who then had to endure 100 years of legal apartheid and who have only had full citizenship rights for 50 years. So we shouldn't be surprised then that black Americans are at the bottom of every social indicator and that we don't pay attention to that. Uh, and so people are forcing America to see it. Um, so. I understand what uh, the mayor is saying, but at the same time, uh, even in Atlanta, black people are attending uh, large numbers of them, failing schools, Uh, large numbers of black people in the city of Atlanta are still living in poverty, are still having the highest uh, infant mortality and maternal mortality rates, high unemployment rates. So black people experience uh, these disadvantages no matter how many small businesses uh, black people own in in a particular city.
1: You, you uh, wrote, I think, on Twitter something, which I, th- I thought was very intriguing. You said, let's not forget that even when people were protesting nonviolently, as Martin Luther King was or John Lewis uh, was, that part of what they were doing was trying to expose the violence that the system, particularly the police, were using. Um, in a sense, they were, you know, baiting the police to do what they often did, which was use violence.
6: Yes, unfortunately in this country, black people's rights have been contingent on convincing enough white Americans that they actually deserve them. And the way that the civil rights movement had to do that, you know, there's this somehow we forget that white Americans were tolerating racial apartheid for 90% of black citizens until the civil rights movement. And the only way that black Americans were able to turn uh, white Americans to deciding this was no longer tolerable was to absorb white violence. When black people simply protested peacefully uh, and, and they were not experiencing white violence, white Americans were fine to turn a blind eye and they did that for decades. It was, you know, so I, I think it's a bit of a mis- misnomer to call the civil rights movement a nonviolent movement. Certainly the protesters studied nonviolence as a tactic, but they had to court white violence in order to get white people to have sympathy. And that uh, to me is, is kind of the, the appalling contradiction.
1: You write in, uh, in that 1619 project, in that I think it was the opening essay, you had these very eloquent words where you said that black Americans, African Americans, believed in the best of America even as they were exposed to the worst of America. And what you meant was they held America to its highest ideals even when they were exposed to the most, the, the most brutal variation from those ideals. Do you think uh, African Americans still believe in the best of America?
6: Uh, I think it's very hard for black Americans to believe in the best of this country, uh, particularly after the election of uh, Barack Obama leads to the election of a president that many consider to be a white nationalist. But. Herein lies the rub, we are a 13% minority in a country literally founded on white supremacy. We have no choice but to believe uh, that we can fight to make this country truer, because uh, if we don't believe that, then we just have to uh, submit to our subjugation. So I think black Americans have always been in this untenable position of being in a country that did not treat us as citizens, but having no choice but to fight to try to make ideals that did not include us true. And that's the role that we still play. But uh, I think these days it, it is very hard to believe in in the best of this country.
1: What what would, what advice would you give people? There are there are people I know who are you know uh, who, who really feel uh, and empathize uh, with the, the pain and suffering that Black Americans have gone through, and are going through. But say, this is ultimately going to help people like Donald Trump get reelected. The, the you know scenes of Black people rioting. Is going to trigger a response among some whites, uh, maybe many whites, and that, th- that leaves them very uneasy. What do you say to people who worry about this that, that there will be a kind of white lash to, to these riots?
6: There is a white lash to black Americans, no matter what black Americans do and black Americans are demanding their rights. I think uh, the time has passed that black people have to be held hostage to white fears uh, about whether they're going to have their rights or not. Prior to these riots, uh, a third of all black American children live in poverty compared to uh, or excuse me. Uh, yes, yeah, a third compared to 12 percent of white Americans. Uh, we spend 23 billion more dollars on schools that serve predominantly white students than we do on schools that serve predominantly black and Latino students. Black women are three more times likely to die of childbirth. We have twice the unemployment rate of white Americans. These were the conditions of black Americans before the riots and white people were willing to tolerate them uh, as long as black people just quietly endured. And so, uh, honestly, the circumstances for black America are very difficult right now. Now they were difficult before the riots. They will be difficult after the riots. If people truly believe in justice, then uh, these being forced to confront what they have been able to ignore shouldn't turn them. And if they can be that easily turned, they weren't really that interested in justice in the first place. I imagine.
1: But do you think, as a practical matter, I mean, if you were to predict what the effect of this politically would be, do you think it 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 will um, it will strengthen? You know the kind of racists out there or people like that
6: uh we as a nation elected donald trump and there weren't all of these riots so maybe maybe not i'm not going to try to predict politically what's going to happen what i am going to say is that uh the lives of so many black Americans were untenable prior to these riots and many white Americans want the comfort of not having to be confronted with that or they want to be confronted with it in a palatable way. But the circumstances black Americans live in are not palatable to black Americans. So yeah, perhaps it will, perhaps it won't. But people were saying that black people speaking up for their rights, black people demanding accountability prior to the riots was going to lead to Trump's reelection. And what that does is that holds black people hostage to the politics of white grievance. And I think black people are not willing to do that.
1: Nicole, Hannah Jones, powerful words. Thank you. Thank you. Next on GPS, from protests in America to protests in Hong Kong, China is clamping down on its nearby territory, and that is exacerbating already sky high tensions between Beijing and Washington. That story when we come back. When Britain handed over Hong Kong to China in 1997, Beijing had agreed to treat it differently from the rest of China. The idea was called One Country, Two Systems, and it assured that the island territory would be granted much more freedom and autonomy. China was accused of breaking that promise this week when when China's National People's Congress approved a resolution to ban sedition, subversion, and secession in Hong Kong. The U.S. has said that it will no longer consider the island territory to have special status. At the same time, it is weighing a very tough response against China. Now, let me bring in two people who know Hong Kong intimately. Chris Patton oversaw that 1997 handover as the last British governor of Hong Kong. Martin Lee is a politician and lawyer who is known as the father of Hong Kong's democracy movement. Um, Martin Lee, let me ask you if I can, to start, what what do you think prompted uh, Beijing's decision? Because so far, they have been somewhat careful about not doing something as overt as what they just did last week.
5: I think they have admitted failure. In other words, they cannot continue with Deng Xiaoping's policy, which is to give Hong Kong people the right to rule Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy. In other words, China will not run the place directly. Let Hong Kong people do that. But six years ago, China published a document in which it claims that it has, the central government, or that means the Chinese Communist Party, has comprehensive jurisdiction over Hong Kong. That is a complete reversal of Deng Xiaoping's promise. And what they are doing now is but an implementation of that new policy, which is clearly in breach of the Sino-British Joint Declaration. And we are still waiting for the British government to do something about it, they are the only
1: other signatory. But do you think, Mr. Lee, that, it, that they did it this, this last week? Do you think it's partly because of the pandemic or is it partly because relations with the United States have gotten so sour that they decided what is the there's no there's no danger of uh, of, a, of a penalty because we're already being penalized with tariffs? I mean, I'm wondering, is, you know, has something changed in the last few months
5: Well, it could be both. Uh, We Cantonese have a saying, if you are sick, we'll take advantage of that and kill you. While you are sick. (laughs) So it it is possible. And of course, the the Cold War um, with the USA could be another reason. The third reason is that they are afraid of losing control of the Legislative Council uh, in our next elections just a few months away in September. So they want to make sure that they could actually legislate for Hong Kong. From Beijing, even if they cannot control the Hong Kong legislature, for all these reasons.
1: Uh, Chris Patton, what do you think? Um, w- w- what do you think the uh, the international community uh, should do about it? Do you think Britain has a particular role? Uh, Washington and the world go in that order.
0: Yeah, Britain has a particular responsibility, which is both legal and political and economic, and above all moral. Um, And that's why I'm pleased. I'm not a member of the government and criticise them very often. But that's why I'm pleased that the uh, foreign secretary has worked with his colleagues in Australia, Canada and the United States um, to set out very clearly um, how appalling China's behaviour has been, a complete breach of an international treaty. I'm pleased that uh, Britain and I think the United States has tried to raise the issue at the uh, United Nations, um, but has been blocked so far by, by China. Um, I know that the European Union has put out a statement very similar to the one uh, from uh, from the uh, UK and others. And I think there's more we can and must do. And we must try to put together all our colleagues and others around the world who are appalled by the fact that this regime, Xi Jinping's dictatorship, is behaving so much worse than any of his predecessors. There's a real threat to the world order which China represents. And going back to the question you asked Martin, uh, I think the Chinese leadership are trying to take advantage of the fact that other countries are obsessed with the coronavirus, understandably, which of course was partly the responsibility of Chinese mendacity and secrecy in the early stages when it was getting out of hand. And they're trying to take advantage of that, not only in Hong Kong, but um, incursions over the Indian border, um, um using muscle in the South China Sea and making threats to Taiwan. I think they see this as an opportunity for doubling down on their usual hectoring and bullying. I don't think that the rest of the world is going to reckon that we can go along like this, still talking about China as a stakeholder. Chinese communism is a menace. It's a danger to every liberal democracy and a danger to a lot of its neighbors as well.
1: The, the, the fundamental question, uh, Chris Batten, that a lot of people are grappling with, however, in the West, I know in Washington um, and I'm sure elsewhere, is the special status that is given to Hong Kong allows the people of Hong Kong to trade, uh, to trade freely, to pass, move capital back and forth freely and to travel freely with the West, with the rest of the world. By taking that special status away, you primarily hurt the people of Hong Kong How should we think about this dilemma?
0: That's a real worry. I mean, I know a lot about this subject because it was while I was governor that we finally concluded the agreements to treat Hong Kong differently in the US uh, Hong Kong Act. We also, while I was governor, um, concluded the extradition treaty between Hong Kong and the United States. And the real dilemma we face is how we can ensure that Chinese communism pays a price for what it's doing without hurting people um, in Hong Kong, and it's very difficult. I think there are issues like, um, uh, similar to the Magnitsky um, uh, uh, sanctions that you could use against individuals. I think there are things like technology transfer, but above all, it's going to be very difficult to protect Hong Kong from the consequences of what Chinese communism has done. Um, And I don't want to see people in Hong Kong and businesses in Hong Kong hurt because of what China has done itself. So it's a complicated thing. I think um, the Americans, I hope, will be looking at how they can use a a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer to deal with this issue. But above all, we have to work together, particularly those of us who recognize that China is a threat. Chinese communism is a threat. And this is a similar moment, as I think the New York Times pointed out recently, um, in in the 20th 20th century history, to Agadir um, or the Saarland, breaching international treaties and endangering the global order.
1: Stay with us uh, and uh, and stay with us, Martin Lee and Chris Patton. We will be back next on GPS. Why protesters have been out in force in America, relatively few have taken to the streets in Hong Kong this week. Why? I will ask Martin Lee that and more when we come back. And we are back talking about Hong Kong with Chris Patton, the last British governor of the territory, and Martin Lee, Hong Kong's great lawyer and political leader. Uh, Martin Lee, how would you respond to the point that uh, Chris Patton and I were talking about, uh, which is uh, that if if one were to strip away Hong Kong's special status, if the United States and other countries were to treat it just like China, uh, that hurts the people and the businesses of Hong Kong. How do we uh, how does one think about uh, holding China accountable without damaging the, the fate of the people of Hong Kong?
5: Well, it is not going to be easy, but what we need is a well-thought-out, sustainable policy in the interest of the long-term future for Hong Kong. And making Hong Kong's interests of paramount importance and not hurting Hong Kong. And I think the easiest way for the mo- at the moment is not to allow China to walk away from the treaty obligations under the Sino-British Joint Declaration. There's no reason why we should allow China to walk away. We should hold China to her own agreement with Britain, which is to trust Hong Kong people and let Hong Kong people be masters of our own house, as promised, by giving us that high degree of autonomy, by giving Hong Kong democracy, as set out in the basic law, which is our mini-constitution, and not to interfere in Hong Kong's internal affairs, which is also provided for, in our mini-constitution, the basic law.
1: Do you worry that if the protesters uh, return to Hong Kong streets, um, that they, the, there is a possibility that uh, the Chinese will send in armed forces, that there will be a kind of forcible occupation of Hong Kong?
5: Uh, I do not think they will need to deploy uh, the uh, People's Liberation Army. If they put their armed policemen in our police force, which we believe they are doing, that would be good enough or bad enough for us. So they don't have to deploy their troops because our people are unarmed. So that is a dangerous thing. That is why I really appeal to our young people not to resort to violence because how can you win by using violence against Communist China? But our young people feel helpless and they don't know what to do and they are prepared to sacrifice many years of imprisonment or even their young lives
1: for The future of Hong Kong. Chris Madden, Martin Lee talks about this careful, um, strategic policy that you know keeps Hong Kong safe while holding China accountable. It feels like the Trump administration has kind of pursued something of the opposite. Trump has lavishly praised China when he's wanted his trade deal then he attacks it on on coronavirus, uh, largely to deflect blame, I would argue, from his own performance. Um, It seems that, you know, we're entering a period which reminds me of the 1950s of anti-communism, where you're not going to get a a strategic scalpel-like policy. You're going to get something very big and blunt.
0: Well, uh, I couldn't begin to fathom out the um, doings and throwings of President Trump's diplomacy, so let me just give three particular examples of things I think we can do. First of all, we do have to work with allies again. This would be a great step forward, and I hope we can see it in relation to China, because what has happened in Hong Kong is bad for the world as well as being bad for Hong Kong. Secondly, I think that uh, Britain should take a lead with the United States and others in setting up an international contact group which will focus on Uh, what's happening in Hong Kong, keep an eye on what's happening in Hong Kong, helped, which is the other point I wanted to make, I hope, by the pressure for a UN international rapporteur to keep in touch with what's happening in Hong Kong. And I'd just like to underline what Martin said just then about the fact that there will be demonstrations, I'm sure, in in, in the future, not least maybe this this week about uh, Tiananmen. Um, But I very much hope that uh, those young people and others won't allow themselves on the fringes to be provoked into violence by the sort of policing that we've seen in the last few months, uh, which suggests that uh, sometimes the communist view of patriotic education is to squirt pepper spray into children's faces or fire tear gas um, at them. I very much hope that the thing can go forward with decency and dignity. Hong Kong is an extraordinary moderate community And it's taken Chinese communists to produce this mayhem occasionally. Uh,
1: Chris Patton, let me ask you about uh, an awkward reality which people tell me about in mainland China, which is that, um, you know, you talked about the change in China under Xi, which is undoubtedly true. But there is also a rise of Chinese nationalism. and, And a lot of people on mainland China think Xi should be tough on Hong Kong, which they regard as kind of a privileged, very rich uh, province that you know didn't have to go through the kind of turmoil that they did. Is there is there a danger that she will play to a sort of domestic nationalism to, to to stay tough on Hong Kong?
0: Yes, very much so. And he's doing that in relation to uh, Taiwan uh, and India uh, and around the South China Sea. And he's doing it in Hong Kong. And he's helped by the fact um, that during the demonstrations last year and the violence that accompanied them. Um, uh, Most of the social media was dominated by uh, nationalist um, coverage, suggesting that this was anti-Chinese and all about splitism, about Hong Kong's sense of its own citizenship. And that's something that the Chinese uh, regime simply doesn't understand. It doesn't understand, um, but it feels threatened by somebody like Martin, because Martin has been elected for things. Just fancy that. What a heroic act that would be. In China, so I think this nationalism is being whipped up, and I think both the nationalism um, and uh, uh, what's happening uh, around the world are partly signs of a sense of, of nervousness in the Chinese leadership, and rightly so too. But I think the, the the whipping up Chinese nationalism requires from the other from other countries, from liberal democracies, and Xi Jinping hates liberal democracies. He said that right from the beginning. I think it requires of us intelligence it requires a certain verbal restraint but absolute firmness in standing up for what we believe in and recognizing that hong kong is a victim of what could or what could happen to us all
1: that is a eloquent uh, point to end on martin lee chris patton lord patton thank you very much To update you on what we saw before, Bob and Doug, the crew of the SpaceX Crew Dragon, are about to enter the space station. I want to apologize to our viewers. We ran out of time because of that docking. But I'll give you my advice to graduates next week if you still want it. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program. I will see you next week.
2: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country.